Well, good morning. Good morning. Few things generate more thankfulness from my heart than the privilege of being part of the body of Christ. And I am especially thankful to be part of this specific body of Christ and this church. One of the things exposed by living in a post-COVID world, and we almost have to say it that way, is the lack of appreciation for the church. When the door swung open wide and called for people to return after lockdowns, many were hesitant to do so. Some were uncomfortable with the possibility of exposure. Others were uncomfortable, or rather they were comfortable, with their positions in front of the computer. But even more, were simply content to allow their involvement in the church be a part of their pre-COVID life and let their involvement with the church go by the wayside. This morning, I call your attention to the importance of the church by placing our gaze on the importance of Christ. I want to ask you to accompany me in elevating the role of the church, the status of the church in the life of a Christian. And pray with me that we may see the preeminent place of the church in our lives by seeing the preeminent place of Jesus Christ in our lives. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message I have called the preeminent Christ, Christ over creation. I'll tell you right now that today's message will be a little bit shorter than the routine message. Last week, we looked at verses 15 through 20 and 15 through 17 of that passage through 20 in Colossians chapter 1. And there we saw the preeminence of Christ, Christ over creation. Now we move forward looking at verse 18 through 20 and see Christ over the church. And so as always, I want to invite those of you who are able to please stand with me. For the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1. And I think once again I'm going to begin in verse 9. Just to read for the sake of context and where we began. Beginning at Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. It says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is also the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. Who the church is, is a reflection of who they think Christ is. What the church thinks about Christ will always be manifested in who the church has become. The church who thinks Christ is truthful will then be image bearers of truth. The church who thinks Christ is authoritative will be known for its submission to Christ's authority. And the church who thinks Christ is lovely will reflect that loveliness. The church is made as the bride of Christ, given to God the Son by God the Father. As God's gift to his Son, then no doubt that this was a meaningful expression of God's love for his Son. Jonathan Edwards proposes that this gift was given so that the mutual joys between this bride and bridegroom are the end of creation, meaning that God's love for the Son is displayed by him gifting the church to his Son and delegating his authority to Christ. And in the same way, Christ mirrors this love, the love of the Father, by showing his love to the church and showering the church with that same love. What is it that Christ sees when he looks upon the church? When he gazes upon his bride, what is his response? I suspect that his response must be like Solomon's response. When Solomon looked at his own bride, as expressed in in Ecclesiastes 1.15, he writes, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. I suspect Christ says the same thing about his church. That Jesus looks upon his bride, upon the church, and says, You are beautiful. Dustin Benge writes, The church is beautiful through the lens through which Christ regards her is his cross. The focal point of blood, righteousness, forgiveness, union, justification, regeneration, and grace. Ultimately, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ makes her beautiful. It is his sacrificial, substitutionary, sinless blood that washes her garments white as snow. He goes on, the cross of Christ makes her beautiful, not only inwardly by justification, but also outwardly by sanctification. From giving second birth to final glory, the righteousness of Christ creates a beautiful bride. We see the same in our scripture reading this morning when Paul writes of himself and talks about who he was before Christ and after Christ. 
He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In the same way that Christ or Paul's past sins are forgiven, and that Christ looks upon him through that forgiveness, he must also look upon the church. The church is beautiful in all its functions. It occupies a unique place in our life. It is a place where we come to be comforted. It is a place we come to be carried when we need to be carried. And it is a place that we come to when we need to be convicted. The church is not like any other place in our life. It holds our affection, not because of what it is, but because of who it is. Outside of our home, the gathering of the church is the most crucial gathering because it brings us to Christ and it places our gaze upon him before all things because he is the head of the church. Therefore, I want you to note first the primacy of Christ. The primacy of Christ, as Paul writes in verse 18. And he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Because Christ is placed before all things, no thing may be placed before Christ. He is preeminent over the church. He is preeminent over creation, and he is preeminent over life. In the past, no individual has ever had the level of impact that our Lord Jesus Christ has had. And now, in the present, no cultural institution has a level of influence that our Lord Jesus Christ has. And in the future, no government administration will have, be as important as our Lord Jesus Christ he is supreme in his charge, he is sovereign in his control, and he is superior in his character. Jesus Christ is first designated here by the title Head of the Body, or Head of the Church. Paul writes to the Ephesians, And he, God, put all things under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Only Christ is a designated heir of God. Only Christ is the delegated authority or has the delegated authority of God. He alone redeemed the church, sacrificially offering his life for both salvation and sanctification of those who would believe and make up the body of Christ. Therefore, only he alone is qualified to be the head of the church. As the image of God in verse 15 of our text, Jesus perfectly governs the church. As the author of creation, in verse 16, Jesus perfectly institutes the church. And as the sustainer of all things, in verse 17 of our text in Colossians, Jesus perfectly upholds the church. The church is made up of many parts, Paul writes to the Corinthians. But they are made one body by the head, united by Christ. To disconnect itself from the head, the body loses its life source, ceasing to function at all. Without the head, the body has no ability to determine its direction, no capacity to advance its position. 
We often have that common picture of a chicken running around with its head cut off. As it's briefly severed, it can run around. But unlike that common picture, the human body without its head is lifeless, having no capability to sustain itself. And so it is also with the church when it is disconnected from Christ. It has no wisdom, no direction, no guidance. Deprived of its source of light, the feet remain lethargic. They're unable to support the weight of the entire body. The legs, stiffened by rigor mortis, cannot even cause the body to progress forward or to move forward and change its position. And the hands lack function. In a fixed position of open, it's willing to receive anything without discernment, and yet at the slight movement from somebody else will drop that same thing in the next instant. To be a living church, the body of Christ must be attached to the head of Christ. Each part of the body must be joined together and then connected to the head. I have to believe that this truth is not so obvious. Because if it were so indisputable, none of us, no people in the church, would be so willing or so quick to forego their time to reflect on God's word. They would not be willing to forego their time of reflective study. Neither would they be so frequently willing to relinquish the time of confessional prayer. And neither would we be so willing to forsake our time with the members of the body. According to G. Campbell Morgan, the church of God, apart from the person of Christ, is a useless structure. However ornate it may be in its organization, however perfect in all its arrangements, however rich and increased with goods, if the church is not revealing the person of Christ, lifting him to the height where all men can see him, then the church becomes an impertinence and a sham, a blasphemy and a fraud, and the sooner the world is rid of it, the better. Jesus Christ is preeminent, first in all things. Therefore, he must be first in the church. As head of the church, he is the first one to be elevated in leadership and the first one to be exalted in our exaltation and worship. Jesus Christ is also designated here as the beginning of the church. While Revelation 3.14 refers to Christ as the beginning of creation, only here in this text in Colossians is it used as a title for Christ. Is he referred to as the beginning? Because he is the beginning of creation. He is the beginning of the church. By his word, all of creation came into being. And by his word, the church came into being. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, the first use of the word church in scripture is found there. And, and talking to Peter, Jesus declares, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is for Christ to build the church. And it is for Christ that the church is built. But notice also in the text the promise that accompanies that verse in Matthew. He indicates that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Not only will Christ produce the church, but Christ will protect the church. 
He alone is responsible for his perseverance and its preservation. Our Lord is immutable, as we learned Wednesday night for those that were here. He is unchangeable in character, unchangeable in word. And so that any decree he issues is both truthful and reliable. So that when he declares, I will protect the church, or when he declares that no gate of hell will come against or prevail against the church, we can trust that to be true and reliable. As the body of Christ, then, what a comfort it is for us to know that no work of a single individual will cause the church to fracture. That no work of Satan will cause the church to fail. And no work of any cultural organization will cause the church to fall. Jesus Christ preserves the church. He is preeminent in all things, and so he is the beginning of the church. Finally, after being declared the firstborn of creation in verse 15, now he is the firstborn of the dead, it says in our text. He goes from the firstborn over the living to now the firstborn over the dead. To John, he declares, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Elsewhere it is written, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Jesus Christ has power not only over the dead, but over the dead in their trespasses. As the one who has conquered death and and thus conquered sin, the firstborn, Jesus Christ, maintains the right to call men out of death and stand in their judgment. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning verse 26. Christ declares, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice. Because he is the firstborn over the dead, Jesus' preeminence extends to his authority and judgment able to judge both the living and the dead. He stands over those outside the church and inside of it. As a firstborn of the dead, he declares who's part of the church and how they become part of the church by belief in his death, burial, and resurrection. If it were not for this truth, there would be no church. Notice what this means then for us. Any body may only have one head. So the implication is that if Christ is the head, we are not. Christ as the head places us in subjection to him. Stewards of the church, not supervisors of it. Shepherds of the church, not superintendents of the church. To place Jesus Christ as the head of the body 
is to apply his lordship to us. The church is not mine. The church is not the elders. And the church is not yours. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. And we are nothing but servants and stewards of it. To confess Christ as the head of the church is to confess ourselves as servants of the church. It is to set aside our own desires and our own preferences and replace them instead with the commands and convictions of Christ. The primacy of Christ is noted by his supremacy over the church. As a head of the body, the church is a reflection of the character and of the condition of Christ. It is a reflection of the work and worth of Christ. When Naomi was hospitalized at her birth, after this intense time of being admonished and afflicted and abused by the staff, I turned to Bethany and said, the treatment we're receiving is a reflection of the headship of this hospital. These people were simply treating others as they were being treated and as their leadership was treating others. And in a few days' time, that notion was confirmed when indeed we saw that the leadership treated people the exact same way. Any group of people is a reflection of the leadership of that group. So being led by Christ, the body of Christ then is to be a reflection of Christ. Jonathan Lehman writes, The local church enables the world to look upon the canvas of God's people and see an authentic painting of Christ's love and holiness not a forgery. Paul proposes this purpose in our text this morning from our scripture reading. 1 Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. By who the church is, the world should know who Christ is. As noted by Ephesians 1.10 Christ's purpose is to unite all things in him. The church doesn't find itself accepted from this truth. Instead, because Christ is the head, the body is united together. It's purposed by him to expose the brightness of God's glory to a dark and obscure world. In evil, the church stands as a beacon of light for truth. Faced with the realities of death, the church preaches life. And in misapplications and misinterpretations of love of the culture, the church displays God's true love. In contrast to the world in which we live, the church is different. (coughs) It is a unique institution, both in its purpose and its person. When the world refuses people, Christ In Christ, the church offers refuge. When the world cancels people, as so often is the phrase said today, in Christ, the church offers eternal life. And when the world divides people in Christ, the church offers unity. The church is a special place, or it should be a special place. It is the only place in which so many people, from so many different backgrounds, with so many different stories, and so many different gifts and abilities, and so many different personalities, are able to function together as one body without division. 
It's one of the great beauties of the church is that in spite of the imperfections of the church, it still displays the perfection of God. I think one of the greatest harms we've done to the gospel and to the church is to speak of a person's personal walk with Christ. And I know that sounds odd. Because indeed, our relationship with Christ is very personable. It is unique and different from individual to individual. And in this way, we're not wrong to talk about a personal walk with Christ. But at the same time, when we use that terminology and talk about our personal walk with Christ, we speak selfishly. And we make it about us and our individual wants and our individual willingness. People will say, well, you walk with Christ your way, and I can walk with Christ my way. And therefore, you cannot evaluate, criticize, or convict me. And yet, at the same time, those same people who don't want that aspect are seeking the praise for their walk. But our walk with Christ is never just personal. It's never dependent just on ourselves. First off, it is ultimately dependent upon Christ and the Holy Spirit. But whether you like it or not, our walk is also very public. Our walk with Christ is viewed and interpreted by unbelievers. And what they see in us is what they will use to judge Christ. But in the same way, our our walk with Christ is viewed and interpreted by other believers. Not to judge salvation, but to interpret sanctification. This is how it should be. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, calls us together as a body of Christ so that we may carry one another's burdens. And yet at the same time, it calls upon us to confront and convict one another. It's caught both ends. If we see behavior not reflective of Christ, not consistent with Christ's call to walk worthy of the calling in which we've been called, and not helpful to Christ's testimony, Indeed, our responsibility as a body of Christ is to challenge one another, not in an attitude of condemnation, but in an attitude of compassion. Last night I read a book about why we should love the church. In fact, it was, it was a good enough book. If it were released, I would have recommended it to you this morning. In that book, the author uses an important phrase about the church. He says the church nurtures holiness. In today's culture, the people don't want a church that fulfills the commands of Christ, but fulfills the demands of people. While not wanting to deny that a church sometimes does and should come to the aid of people and those who make up the body of Christ, especially in a difficult time, the main purpose of the church is to nurture holiness in the lives of the people. It preaches salvation to the unsaved and sanctification to the saved. It's not a building. It's not a social group. It's not a weekly musical performance. The church is the body of Christ functioning in a way to draw people to Christ. Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen write in their book, Rediscover Church, If we continue to mindlessly treat our churches as little more than clubs, buildings, or performances, we'll miss the truckload of support and blessing that God means to park in our driveways. (coughs) My desire is to recapture the vision of the church, 
seeing it not as man's association, but as God's institution. And for that, I want us to do something as a church. In your bulletin this morning, you have a small card with a couple of questions. And I'm appreciative of Gloria and Sunel for making that happen and working with me. Over the next nine weeks, you'll be receiving one of these each week. Beginning next week, it will be a little more in-depth than what you see here. I want us to read a book together. And I want to do so very informally. That card, that one there, coincides with this book. The one that I just mentioned and quoted from, Rediscover Church, by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. I believe I have enough for at least every family in the church. I've been wanting to introduce this for weeks now. In fact, I was going to give it over Christmas, and yet we've been down on people because of holidays and snow. I thought today would be a great day. We're down about 22 people, I think, today. But if I keep putting it off, it will never happen. My desire is for each of us to read this book. Each week, we will read one chapter. And then that Sunday, the Sunday following the chapter we've read, you will get one of those cards. And in that card, there will be several things. First, it will be three bullet points just to summarize the chapter. I'll give you a key quote. And then two or three questions. And those questions are meant to motivate discussion amongst the body with one another. So that when you see those questions, you can ask somebody else their own thoughts and start talking about it. And then the last portion that I'll include on that is kind of what you have before you today. And that's questions for you to think about before reading the next chapter. So what you have before you are, cha- are questions to look at and consider before you read chapter one this week. So the goal this week is for everyone to read chapter one. What is the church is the name of the chapter. And the questions here should cause you to think more deeply about what is the church. And then when you arrive next week, there will be a new card that offers a summary, a brief summary, and some quotes and some further questions. This is informal. I'm not going to be testing you. I'm not going to be standing at the back of the door each week asking if you completed your homework. I did think about that one. (laughs) I may ask questions periodically just to see if you are learning and growing. I hope you'll ask me questions, and I hope the elders will ask you questions to put them on the spot in the moment, too. (laughs) Like anything, though, you only get out of it what you put into it. If you enter this half-heartedly, any potential growth will only be half-hearted. If you enter this critically, you only grow more critical. But if you enter this wanting to grow and invest time and do so willfully, the growth in that investment is exponential. But it is completely dependent upon you. I've not made this complicated. The book is an easy read. I read it in one night. The authors write simply, but they write with conviction. So it's not a hard read. The card I'm going to give you is minimal. Something that you can read very quickly that will just cause you to think more about things and perhaps have a conversation. I suspect that for most people, spending 10, 15 minutes a day 
is not merely just adequate to get through. It's probably sufficient enough to read the book, to look up some scriptures, and really think about what you're reading. I'm not trying to add a huge time burden. My hope is that as we do this, we will capture the beauty of the church, that we will see it as lovely, that we will see it as a lovely bride of Christ, more specifically. Not lamenting its failures, but contributing to its Christ-likeness. Earlier, I shared with you a quote from Destin Bench, who wrote, The church is beautiful because the lens through which Christ regards her is his cross. The focal point of blood, righteousness, forgiveness, union, justification, regeneration, and grace. He goes on to say, What must it be like to be admired by the sinless Son of God? And yet, rather than admire her, we imagine we could identify her failures, her shortcomings, and the loathsome sin that so often spoils her garments. And to that, Charles Spurgeon would say this, The church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Christ loved his church and let us do the same. I have no doubt that the Lord can see more fault in his church than I can. And I have equal confidence that he sees no fault at all because he covers her faults with his own love, that love which covers a multitude of sins. And he removes all her defilement with the precious blood which washes away all the transgressions of his people. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you grateful that indeed we have the Bride of Christ, that we are the Bride of Christ. Father, may we ensure that your Son is at the head of it. May we respond to his convictions and his commands by the work of your Spirit, Lord. May we become stewards and shepherds of the church, not superintendents over the church. Father, this is your body. May it reflect you. May we show to the world who you are. May we demonstrate your hope and your love and your truth and your compassion in the same way that your son Jesus Christ did. Father, convict us and convince us to draw near to you and in doing so, drawing near to each other. Because we know iron sharpens iron, and so we want to be a body of Christ that draws closer to you because we're building relationships with one another just as well. And so, Father, we commit this time to you, grateful for who you are, grateful for your work. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.